Please open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 18. Ephesians 1, 18. As we we read this, remember this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Verse number 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Let us bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for allowing us to come before you and worship you. We ask for your help to understand this text this morning that the Spirit would enlighten our minds, our hearts, to the hope to which you have called us. Help us to know it. And Father, if there's anyone here today without hope, we ask that they would come to to know you this very day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we began to examine Paul's first petition or request on behalf of the Ephesian Christians. And I pointed out that that what Paul prays for them reflects what he believes to be their greatest need. You pray for someone according to their needs. As we saw, Paul does not pray for their health, their finances, or their safety, though those are are real needs that that should be prayed for. Paul revealed that that they had one great need that transcended all other needs. The greatest need, according to the apostle, was to know God better. He prays for them to have Holy Spirit led wisdom and insight into the scriptures that they may know God better. And as we saw, this is not just an intellectual knowledge of God, but intimate experiential knowledge. And if you recall, I also said that that in Paul's prayer, he starts with a very broad petition and he, he then narrows it down. So today we will see him begin to narrow down his request. So he starts verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is, in a sense, the the introduction to Paul's specific request for them. He wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. Now, what does this mean? We know that to be enlightened means to be illuminated. To, to have light cast upon something. When, when we want to, someone to give us information on something we are ignorant of, we say what? Enlighten me. Cast light upon the situation. But when we think of being enlightened, we, we, we often think of the mind, don't we? We consider a person's mind to be enlightened because the mind is what we use to think. But Paul does not say he, he wants the eyes of their minds to be enlightened, rather the eyes of their hearts. And before we think that Paul is simply saying that 
They need to have enlightened emotions. We need to understand what Paul means when he speaks of the heart. MacArthur notes that in most modern cultures, the heart is thought of as the seat of emotions and feelings. But most ancients, Hebrews, Greeks, and many others, considered the heart to be the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. One resource defines the heart as the the locus of a person's thoughts, that is, the mind, volition, emotions, and knowledge of right and wrong, that is, the conscience. Sproul points out that the heart, in New Testament terms, refers to the central disposition, inclination, bent, or proclivity of the human soul. In simple terms, it is the bias. So when Paul speaks of the heart, he uses this word to to, to include much of their being. He wants the Ephesian Christians and the entirety of their being to be enlightened. Paul desires for their understanding and thinking to be enlightened. He desires their, their emotions to be enlightened. He desires for their affections to be enlightened. He desires for their disposition or inclination to be enlightened. He desires for their bias, their bent, to be enlightened. The inevitable question is, what does Paul want these believers to be enlightened to? Well, this takes us back to verse 17. In verse 17, Paul prayed that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the the knowledge of God. And that prayer parallels this first petition here in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So having wisdom and illumination from the Holy Spirit is essentially the same as having enlightened hearts. The difference is that in verse 18, Paul spells out more clearly what he desires to be enlightened, not just the mind, but the heart, not just intellectual illumination, but illumination of the mind, the emotions, the affections, the will, and everything else that the heart symbolizes. So the reason Paul wanted these believers to have spirit-led wisdom and illumination in verse 17 was because he wanted them to grow in their knowledge of God. So this applies to verse 18 as well. Verse 17 sets the stage. Paul wants these believers to grow in the knowledge of God. So here in verse 18, he prays for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. For what reason? So that they grow in the knowledge of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And Paul is emphasizing this because as we noted last week, This is not just an intellectual exercise. This this has extreme implications. And we'll see that in a moment. But, But let me just first draw your attention to Paul's emphasis here. I just showed you the, the similarities between verse 17 and the, the first part of verse 18. And in both of these verses, there is an emphasis placed upon what? Illumination. Now, in verse 17, we see that we need the Spirit to give us wisdom and illumination. And then in verse 18, we need our hearts to be enlightened or illuminated. So, so why this great emphasis on illumination? Why does Paul not speak of learning, for example, instead of being enlightened? The reason why is because this goes much deeper than a mere learning of new facts. 
Sproul points, at, points out that by nature we are closed to the things of God, but this does not mean that we cannot discuss them nor have intellectual debates about them. So you see, even those who are closed to the things of God, even those who are, who are non-Christian can have intellectual discussions about God. They can even grow intellectually in the knowledge of what the Bible says about God. They can memorize the, the facts of the Bible without any heart change but, but is that what Paul desires for these Christians? To simply have more facts of God in their head. No, it goes much deeper. Listen again to Sproul. Everybody has a bias and prejudice. The word prejudice is usually a pejorative term, but, but what it literally means is to prejudge certain things, to have a standpoint, a viewpoint. Our, our natural prejudgment of reality is against God. To receive the truth of God requires that our anti-bias be changed. So one thing that Sproul mentioned the heart refers to is, is the bias. We are not just neutral creatures. Either we are biased for God or we are biased against God. Because of this bias... We have presuppositions with which we interpret all facts. This is why merely learning more facts about God is not what Paul is speaking of. Learning more facts with the wrong biases is not helpful. What we need is illumination that changes the heart. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. I can remember when debating with people about the issue of whether or not a woman can be a pastor. And you, and you look at a text with a bias and says, well, this is not what, what, it, what it, saying what, I, what, it, what it clearly says. But, but a believer can do that. A believer can look at a text with a certain bias that makes him misinterpret the text. So Paul says this is not just a matter of facts. There's a bias. Listen, listen once again to to what Sproul says. He says, the key work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is not giving new knowledge to the brain, but changing the disposition of the heart. Before the Spirit turns that heart of stone into a heart of flesh, we have no desire for the things of God. We may desire the blessings that only God can give us, but we have no affection for the things of God. At the moment of regeneration, the eyes of the heart are opened somewhat. But this is just the beginning. This is an ex excellent explanation of what Paul means. The Holy Spirit does not just give new knowledge to our brains, but he changes the very disposition or bias of our hearts. And although we are given new hearts in regeneration, we are still blind to many things. And many areas of our thinking and our emotions and our will are not yet in line with Scripture. Salvation does not make us perfect. Every Christian is a work in progress. This means that each of us here today have thoughts and emotions, affections, attitudes, and perhaps certain presuppositions that are not yet biblical. And thus we need to be enlightened by the Holy Scripture, by the Holy Spirit rather, through the Scriptures. Once again, Sproul says, the whole Christian life involves an unfolding and enlarging of the heart's openness 
to the things of God. You see, it's not just facts. Your openness to the things of God. How many of you became a Christian and then realized that you were still opposed to God in many ways, unwilling to submit to certain aspects of Scripture? And and over time, it wasn't just a matter of facts, but over time, the Lord had to soften your heart to, to submit to him, even in those areas where you knew that as a Christian, you were resistant to him. Sproul says there are concepts, attitudes, and values in my life at present that do not please God. For there will be stony parts to my heart as long as sin abides within me. Sin clouds my thinking, my will, my desires, my affections. There will always be parts of me that need to be opened more and more to let the fullness of God's truth dwell within me. This is a lifelong process. Our constant need is for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened be illuminated. And this is how we grow in sanctification. This is how we become more like Christ. It's not just facts. Dear friends, how many of you today have more knowledge of Scripture than you put to practice? Everybody in here could raise their hand and say, it's true of me. It's not just a matter of facts, is it? No. It's a matter of of our hearts being enlightened, illuminated to the things of God. This is how we become more like Christ. This is how we are comforted through the the difficulties of the Christian life. So here's what this boils down to. Paul wants these believers to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit, to grow in wisdom, not just in the head, but in the heart. And the purpose of this illumination is to lead them to a greater knowledge of God. And there are three specific things that Paul wants them to know as they are illuminated by the the Spirit. And we will cover one of these three things today. So Paul wants us, as he wanted the Ephesians, to be enlightened. To what? Paul goes on, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom and illuminate their hearts to better understand the hope they have been called to by God. How many of us here today know that we are to have hope? And yet, we often live our lives in despair a contradiction of what we know to be truth. What is your need, dear friend, for for me to tell you that you're to have hope? No, you know that. Your need is to be enlightened to the hope to which he has called you. Now, what is hope? Hope has to do with expectation. And this is important to understand because I don't think we use this word often the, the, the the proper way. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines hope as confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. Notice the second part of that definition. The highest degree of well-founded expectation 
of good. Now, this is different than, than merely wishful thinking, isn't it? In fact, Webster makes this distinction. Hope differs from wish and desire in this, that it implies some expectation of obtaining the good desired or the possibility of possessing it. So again, there is expectation of obtaining. This is the difference between hope and a wish. Spurgeon says a groundless hope is a mere delusion. You know, someone can say, I, I wish I had a million dollars. I hope someone gives me a million dollars today. But this is not really hope because it is not founded upon anything. And you, and you really don't have an expectation for that to happen. So it's more of a wish. It's more of a desire. But, but we say, I hope. But that's not the definition of hope. And it is essential for us to understand this distinction because when Paul talks about the hope with which we have been called as Christians, he is not talking about wishful thinking based upon fairy tales, but rather expectation of good based upon God. The hope we have in Christ is not the same as what we, what we mean when we say, I hope someone gives me a million dollars. This hope is certain. Sproul says hope is called the anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6.19, because it gives stability to the Christian life. Hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on. Listen to this last part. It is that which latches on to certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. We have been given hope an expectation of good to come. And this expectation is based upon the very promises and integrity of God. That is not wishful thinking, dear friends. That is well-founded expectation. So what's the big deal about this? Why, why does Paul want them, out of all things, to, to understand the hope to which they've been called? Well, there's nothing in this world more pathetic than a hopeless person. The, the hopeless person is, is absolutely miserable. Spurgeon said, kill hope in a man and you have killed the man's best self. The, the hopeless person cannot be comforted in, in distress or, or grief because there, there's nothing to look forward to. The hopeless person cannot find motivation to live and, and to work or, or do anything. Sometimes you can go into the streets and, and, and talk to a drunkard, a, a man who's doing nothing with his life, and, and he desires to do nothing with his life but to drink away the problems until he dies. Why? Because he does not have an ounce of hope. The hopeless person thinks of death and despairs. Because there is no expectation of good to come. And when we think about the miserable condition of being hopeless, and this is the condition that these Christians in Ephesus were once in. Listen to what Paul says in, in chapter 2 of this book. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision 
by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. This was their condition. Having no hope and without God in the world. That was the former situation of the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. And dear friends, if you are a Christian here today, this was once your condition as well. You were without God in this world. You were children of wrath and sons of disobedience. You were alienated from God with, with no hope. You were under the wrath of God, and at any moment, God could have brought you to judgment and poured out His wrath upon you. You were enslaved to sin, unable to release yourself, unable to set yourself free. You were a hopeless slave to the very sin which condemned you. And perceiving your hopelessness, perhaps you said, I will become a better person <coughs> and start earning favor with God. But what did you soon learn? The more you tried, the harder you tried, the more you realized that, that your slavery to sin was real. You, you could not do right. And not only that, but perhaps you read in Scripture that your good works were like filthy rags before the eyes of a righteous God. And you read in Scriptures that by, by deeds of the law, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Well, what, what a hopeless situation. Sinners enslaved to sin and under the wrath of God with, with no hope of earning salvation. And though we were helpless, hopeless, hell-deserving sinners, we were given a gospel of what? Hope. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have hope. What did we just sing? In Christ alone, my, my hope is found. Hope of forgiveness. Hope of, of redemption. Hope of freedom from the slavery of sin. Hope of freedom from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin. Hope of imputed righteousness with which to stand before the Father. Hope of eternal life. Hope of reconciliation to God. Hope of an eternal inheritance. We have hope that though we die, we will be raised again in glory. Our great hope as believers is not that we will have health and wealth and prosperity here in this life, but that death has in fact been defeated. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Sometimes Christians have a miserable, a miserable existence on earth with much suffering and persecution. And even the believer with the most suffering possible on earth has a hope that goes beyond this life. The Christian hope is that death is to depart and be with Christ, which Paul says is far better the Christian hope is that Christ will return and give his people glorified bodies and glorified minds in a new heaven and earth. And dear friends, do not think that you can live without this hope. Do not try to, to minimize this hope. Don't, don't try to stand on your own footing and say, I, I'm so strong that I really don't need hope. I can just do what's right on my own. If that's the case, 
If you live that way, you will soon find yourself in despair. Hope is essential to living the Christian life. I would argue this. If you can live the Christian life without hope, it's not the Christian life you're living. It's probably the Americanized version. Ferguson says, what does the hope to which he has called you, why does the hope to which he has called you hold such a priority in Paul's prayers for his friends? Why does Paul prioritize this? Because how we live the Christian life is in large measure determined by how we think about the future. Putting it another way, the purpose behind God's revelation about the future is to transform the way we live in the present. If we have no future hope, we will live as hopeless people. How did I just describe to you the hopeless man, that the drunkard sitting on the street homeless? Why is he living that way? Because he has hope? No, because he doesn't have hope. And hope affects the way you live. The Christian who really is not sure of his hope, of his eternal hope, would do whatever is necessary to preserve his life on earth, even if if it means to deny his Savior. Ferguson goes on to say, we need to see the future clearly if we are to live in the present faithfully. For the truth is, Christians are never too heavenly-minded to be any earthly use. Have you ever heard that? Don't be so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly use. That's nonsense. It is those who are most heavenly-minded who are of most earthly use. It it is those who who have the, the greatest strength of hope, who are willing to to sacrifice and and give, give it all up for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of advancing the kingdom. Sproul says, by knowing the hope that is set before them, believers are motivated by the certainty that their work in this world and their care for people in the here and now is not in vain. What's our motivation to know those things? Our hope. Hamilton puts it this way. Paul is praying that we might know this hope, be assured of its certainty. God wants all his believing children to know for sure who they are and where they are going. Lack of assurance of salvation is not a mark of spiritual humility. It can be tremendously debilitating and hugely distracting. One of Satan's prime tactics is to sow seeds of doubt into our minds, which prompts us to ask questions like, am I really saved? Is heaven truly my ultimate destiny? Assurance of salvation frees us from self-absorption so that we can live without distraction for our Savior. So Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would indelibly assure these hard-pressed Christians of the great and glorious hope that is theirs in Christ. Without hope, we are unproductive Christians who do nothing more than fret about our stability, about our condition. Hope 
is essential. We saw last week in James that that it is hope that enables us to endure suffering patiently, and it is hope that, that enables us to strengthen our hearts in the face of suffering, injustice, or persecution, or anything. And I pointed us to 1 Thessalonians, where Paul tells us that hope produces steadfastness. And I pointed us to to 2 Corinthians where where Paul says, since we have such a hope, we we are very bold. Hope produces boldness. And we talked about how the, the, the strength of our hope is directly related to the way we live our lives for Christ. If we are timid, if we beat around the bush, if we refuse to to speak boldly, if we refuse to serve him with zeal, it's probably because the strength of our hope is lacking. Dear friends, what did the Ephesian saints need in order to be bold witnesses for Christ in a pagan city with the reality of persecution? They needed to have their hearts enlightened to to know experientially the God who had given them great hope. They needed to know this hope, not just intellectually. They needed the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know this hope. What about those Ephesian saints who were being persecuted? What about those who lost their comforts in this life? What about those whose lives were shaken and uncertain? What did they need most? What they needed most was a sure and steady anchor. Did they have one? Hebrews 6.19 We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil. Hope is the very anchor of the soul. Matthew Henry says, we are in this world as a ship at sea. Picture yourself that way. You are a ship at sea, liable to be tossed up and down and in danger of being cast away. The temptations, persecutions, and afflictions that we encounter are the winds and waves that threaten our our shipwreck. We have need of an anchor to keep us sure and steady, or we are in continual danger. Gospel hope is our anchor. As in our day of battle, it is our helmet. So in our stormy passage through this world, it is our anchor. Dear Christian, does your life feel like a, a storm-tossed ship at this moment? Are the storms in your life and in this world rocking and, and shaking you to the core? Do you feel like that ship that Paul was on when the waves were beating it up and it was breaking into pieces. Is that how your life feels right now? Do you, do you feel a sense of uncertainty 
because of the severity of the storms in your life? Do you feel as though the waves may overtake you at any moment and you will be lost forever? If that describes you, dear saint, what you need is greater illumination of the hope to which God has called you. That is your anchor in the storm. Look no place else. You need the hope of Christ. Perhaps there is someone here today who was not a Christian. And, and what I described here speaks to you. Your, your life is, is shaky and perhaps falling apart. There's no sense of security in your life. The waves are overtaking you and filling the ship faster than you can get the water out. You know that it is only a matter of time before you sink. And not only is your life miserable because nothing seems to, to go your way in this life, but, but, but you know that, that when you die, you have to face the judgment of God so you'll be miserable in life and even more miserable in death. It is as though you are stranded on a life raft in the middle of the ocean after a shipwreck. And the waves are getting bigger and bigger in the, in the darkness, the night is coming. You, you are surrounded with, with, with darkness and, 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 and waves that are massive all around. If this is your condition right now, you need to understand that there is, in fact, hope. If you were in a life raft in the middle of the ocean, knowing that it's a, it's a matter of time before you die, and you see the dark of night all around you. What would be the emotion that you, that you felt when you saw this helicopter coming and its light shining on the water in your direction? What would be the emotion that would overtake you at that point in time? Hope. That there is hope of being rescued. Dear friends, if you are on that storm-tossed water, right now as an unbeliever, let me point you to the light of the gospel where there is, in fact, hope. If you trust in Christ for salvation and turn from your sins this very day, then no matter how dark your present situation may be, you have a glorious hope that no situation can shake. Dear friends, we could go on and on with this truth, showing the, the practical implications of knowing the hope we are called to. The psalmist knew this hope. What does he say Psalm 42? Here he is talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why? He knows what he needs to do, doesn't he? What does he say? Hope in God. Christian, is your soul cast down this morning? Are you depressed? Is the anxiety of this world, the cares of this world casting you down and putting you into a place of turmoil? What do you need to do? Do what the psalmist did. Hope in God. And as we close here, I want you to notice 
the word called. Did you, did you notice that? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Don't miss the significance of this statement. We have been sovereignly called into hope. This is important because this assures us of our hope. This assures us that, that our hope can never be taken away. We see this truth clearly in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We see in that passage that God has sovereignly predestined some people to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whom he sovereignly predestined, these he also called. And this is what we refer to as effectual calling, our, our internal calling, whom God calls to be saved will be justified and ultimately glorified. Now notice the wording Paul uses, whom God called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What does this mean? It means that if you have been called by God to salvation, he will justify you. And if he has justified you, he will sovereignly glorify you. In the world to come. This means that we have, be, we have hope because of the sovereign calling of God. Our hope rests not on our ability to remain Christians. Our hope does not rest upon our grip upon Christ. Our hope rests on his sovereign calling. If he has called you, he will justify you. If he has justified you, he will, in fact, glorify you. Are you justified right now? Do you, do you know in your heart that you are justified right now? If that is the case, he will sovereignly get you to glorification. You have hope that is based upon his sovereignty and his goodness. This is why it is, in fact, a sure and steady anchor. It's not based upon us. It's based upon His sovereignty and His goodness. This is our need. To know this hope. Not just to know the facts, but to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to this. This is something we can't do. This is the Spirit's work. God does this. And, and, and by the way, this is why our, our greatest need is to know Him, which includes what, what He has done for us and why He has done it for us. Dear friends, this needs to be our great pursuit, to know this God and the hope to which He has called us. Listen to Matthew Henry. We ought to labor after and pray earnestly 
for a clearer insight into and a fuller acquaintance with the great objects of a Christian's hope. Do you desire that? A clearer insight into and a fuller acquaintance with the great hopes of the Christian. This is something that convicted me. Have you ever prayed for that? God, enlighten my mind to to have a a fuller acquaintance with and a clearer understanding of the the hope that you've given me? As I prepared this sermon, I, I said to myself, I don't know that I've ever prayed that. But yet, this is Paul's prayer for these Ephesian saints. Why? Because this is their great need to know this hope. Perhaps we think to ourselves, why doesn't Paul just give us exhortation? Just just tell me what to do. This is how some of us think, right? Just just tell me what to do. Don't give me all of this wishy-washy stuff. Don't give me this. Don't give me that. Just tell me what to do. Give me the exhortation. Perhaps a new Christian, in the zeal of just the newness of, of Christianity, would be zealous for a while, running on fumes, as it were. But such a person will, will eventually burn out unless they understand this hope. What do you do, dear saint? When you share the gospel over and over and over again with someone and they they just don't budge. If your hope is not in Christ, you despair. What do you do, dear saint, if you've prayed over and over and over again for the sickness to leave your body and it doesn't? What do you do if you do not have this hope? You despair. This is necessary. It's not just exhortation, it's exposition. Listen to what Hamilton says. He understands, Paul understands, that the spiritual well-being of these believers and their gospel effectiveness do not lie principally in exhortation, but in exposition. Paul is not slow to press exhortations on Christians, and he will do so in Ephesians 4 through 6. Listen to this. But the gospel effectiveness of of exhortation depends on its being rooted and grounded in the glorious truth of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. When Christians are struggling in any way, their their first and great need is to hear, Behold your God. When churches find themselves racked by disputes, disagreements, and even divisions. Their great and first need is to hear, Behold your God. Paul gets to the exhortation later. But understand, dear friend, understand that the, the practical implications of these indicatives that he is giving us. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened does infinitely more than me sitting here today telling you what to do. 
Because odds are, most of you in here know what to do. Again, that's not the issue. The issue is not that we don't know what to do. The issue is not that we don't know what the Scripture says. The issue is that the eyes of our hearts are partially blinded. They are biased. And our desire needs to be to, to have the eyes of our hearts opened enlightened so that we can actually apply and obey the truth that we already know. May God do this for us today. Let us pray. Dear God, I preach today saying that mere facts won't change us. And so I stand in recognition that every word I, I said today will, will be useless, Father, unless your Spirit uses it. Unless you actually enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts to, to, to get rid of the bias against these truths. Dear God, open the eyes of our hearts that we may know you in a more intimate, experiential way. And that we would know experientially the, the, the hope to which you have called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.